Hello and welcome to another fun-filled edition of Rank and Review. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. This episode, my guest Mireille Smith and I are going to be discussing six documentary features. So you have that to look forward to, but you should go into the podcast, as always, understanding that there will be spoilers for the films being discussed, as well as coarse language, most likely from me. You can send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N. R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can check out this website at rankandreview.ca. And thank you so much for being here and listening to Rank and Review. Please tell a friend about the show. Now let's do this thing. So I have Mireille Smith back on Rank and Review. It's been an extended absence, but... The world has been falling apart, and we've been living in this chaos, so uh, thank you for making it through this. You were having a hard time getting your hands to some of these movies. Um, uh, well, I rely on the library a lot, and there was a period of time where, you know, there was no curbside pickup, there was nothing. Nothing. So, what am I going to do? Pay to stream it? <laughs> Pay for a movie? Uh, that's that seems kind of old fashioned. <laughs> I know, terrible. But no, I, I do. I'm a library person, so I do. Uh, that's usually my my method. I do I do subscribe to things, so I do pay for things. I don't want to make it seem like I'm a freeloader. <laughs> well, I'm a big believer in the physical medium, as you know, and I'm having a hard time, you know, entering the digital age. <laughs> but uh, kicking and screaming, so must we go forward, because uh, there's no changing it. I, I mourn the loss of the physical medium. I mourn the slow death of theaters. Um, but one, I think, aspect of film that's going to continue to flourish, arguably, in the near future is documentaries. Um, they always seem to be popular, but these days, specifically true crime documentary, is immensely popular. Now, we're not, we're not talking specifically about true crime documentaries here, but these are documentaries. I'm just curious why you chose the list. Was there a specific movie or two on the list that you wanted to talk about, or was it just documentaries as a genre? Documentaries in general and true stories in general. I just, um, I like them. And, you know, I, my favorites tend to be the ones that focus on the amazing and the unusual. And, I mean, being a, I'm not ashamed to reveal that I'm a pretty average, you know, 
person living a quiet life. And so it's nice to hear tell about remarkable things and events and people. Right. And that's pretty much what, what's on this list. For me, I think that some of the worst documentaries you see are somehow more compelling than even really good movies. You just have the power of truth and a good story being told by someone who lived through it. There's something just innately compelling about it. And uh, you just, you can sniff bullshit, even if it's like the most professionally, you know, executed movie. You understand that, you know, just off camera, there's a trailer and there's a food table and there's all this crew and stuff like that. Um, there's something about documentaries that can really get to the meat of a subject in an authentic way. But the flip side of the coin is, and this is especially again talking about true crime, is that it can feel very exploitive if not handled well. And there was a time, especially I think in the 90s, when they were finding their feet with this sort of thing, where the line between like a journalistic kind of examination on a, a, on a case and an exploitative, basically horror presentation of an actual crime that happened to an actual person got so blurred that it was kind of confused. Uh, to that end, I tend to prefer, prefer more portrait documentaries, um, usually about people or uh, historical events. Um, I'm thinking of like In the Realms of the Unreal, about this obscure artist who was spent his whole life as a janitor, but when they died, they just found volumes and volumes of art and, and, and writings that he'd done. Things like that, uh, found stories, that's what I think the documentary is well, at least for me, really excels at. I mean, we're always going to be drawn to the true crime stuff in the same way, you know, you got to slow down next to a car accident. But I think the genre is bigger than just true crime. Was there any that jumped out? Yeah, well, I had seen three of them. Right. Um, Room 237, Man on Wire, and um, Exit Through the Gift Shop. And I had liked all of those a lot. So right. I was keen to revisit them. And the other three I hadn't seen, but was interested to see. Good. So it was um, an easy list to pick. Nice. Um, and again, these are more portraits for the most part. Um, there, if there's a theme, I guess, in a way... There's a sort of thin line of obsession in, in these documentaries. Um, a lot of the characters have are very driven or very obsessed by specific things. And it doesn't necessarily define them, but the documentary uses that obsession as a hook to get into the subject. Yeah, and then what was interesting too is that there are kind of like um, three couplets thematically really because we have um, monster camp and murder ball which are basically about you know people um, engaging in a group activity and finding um, you know purpose and belonging and then you've got your sound city and room 237 which are you know reflections on a significant cultural artifact I guess we could say right. and then man on wire and exit through the gift shop are two men well Frenchmen, even. <laughs> Frenchmen who are, you know, blindly obsessed with achieving their goals. Yeah. So it's interesting to compare them that way, too. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea, particularly with the exit through the gift shop and Man on Wire, as um, blurring the line between art and crime. <laughs> mm. Because... Uh, 
he does Banksy trespasses and paints on buildings without permission and does these elaborate climbs in the dead of night, sometimes by himself, risking life and limb, uh, just to put a painting up that people will see for a few days sometimes. Uh, man on wire, this crazy man strings a wire between the two towers of the World Trade Center and walks on them. He's 24 years old when he does this. And like, wow, dude, that's really like illegal and crazy. But that is a story almost too crazy to believe, be believed. Um, and yeah. uh, that is where we want the documentary to take it in. Like, they did make a movie about Mount on Wire. I can't comment on it because I haven't seen it. But I cannot imagine it. Oh, have you? I can't imagine it being more engaging than this documentary. Even though Zemeckis did it, and I'm sure the effects are amazing. I don't know. I, I'm just full of doubt about it. Yeah, and I wouldn't discourage you necessarily from watching it, but it's one of those that there's there's nothing wrong with it, but there was really no purpose for it. And I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I think he did a great job, but my European friends tell me that his accent sucked, but <laughs> I, couldn't really, I couldn't really tell I'm not that great on distinguishing accents. All French accents suck, Mick. All French accents. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to get a cheap shot in. You know? <laughs> well done. Okay. Uh, should I list off these movies? Is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction? Nope, go okay. ahead. We're going to talk about Exit Through the Gift Shop, Room 237, Sound City, Monster Camp, Murder Ball, and we'll finish it up with Man on Wire. Mireille, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. used to encourage everyone I met to make art. I used to think everyone should do it. I don't really do that so much anymore. Some people, you know, might think that I'm a rabbit because I'm running around and they think that I'm not organized. But I said, wait till the end of life and you'll see if I'm a rabbit or a turtle. Okay, so Exit Through the Gift Shop is a documentary about sort of uh, pop art, what do they call this sort of, it's not flash mob art, but like uh, people who, street art. street art, I guess, uh, made by this guy Banksy, who is basically the most famous person for doing this. He goes to different places in different cities and he puts up paintings, sometimes rapidly really fast, sometimes it takes him a while to do it. And... Uh, the story of the movie and again the veracity of all of this has been highly questioned by people so a lot of this documentary you have to take a little bit with a grain of salt but he gets this guy to document him doing what he does uh and the movie is sort of split between the subject of banksy and the man who is taking all of these footage and who slowly, it seems, wants to reinvest, invent himself into this Mr. Brainwash character and become sort of, turn himself into a Banksy, which he kind of somewhat successfully does. Uh, 
how the movie feels about this, how Banksy feels about this, is kind of the interesting thing about the movie. And subsequently to the movie coming out, there's a lot of people who say that this movie itself is just another Banksy stunt, which is completely credible and believable as well. So, you know, you could look at this film from an adversarial point of view and say, this is a joke being played on its audience and how seriously can I take it? But then I fall back on the subject of art itself. Even the most hoity-toity, you know, like gallery, you know, wine and cheese, let's discuss the brilliance of this abstract art, has for me, it, it triggers my inner skeptic. What is the difference between brilliant abstraction and just random nonsense? And who can tell me that and why that person? You know, I am full of doubt, and yet I consider myself a fervent supporter of the arts. So these are all the thoughts that get triggered in me when I watch Exit Through the Gift Shop. The real problem, and I guess we can discuss whether or not it is a problem, is that in documentaries especially, we value truth. And that the truth is so loose in the movie, is it a problem? I found it really entertaining, but is it honest? I guess that's where I start with Exit from from the book from the gift shop. Uh, where does Mick stand? Well, I did not do a bunch of extra reading, and I didn't know. I didn't even know what you just said about um, it maybe being a joke mm-hmm. and all of that. But even if it is, I guess it just adds another layer to the whole. You know, I've heard you before use the term art wankery, right? And and what is good art and you know is his mass production produced by all of these different people who are basically just taking direction does that make his art less valuable right you know like if you bought something of his that you loved and put on your wall and it was enriching your life and you didn't know its backstory does it have inherently less value once you find out that this guy just paid I guess I'm kind of on the fence about what I think about that kind of thing because, you know, lots of medium or, you know, forms of art are like that. Um, the most, Some of the most famous fashion designers don't even know how to sew, right? Yeah. Their art is just to come up with, you know, this incredible garment and pay somebody else to make it happen. Yeah. So who am I to decide? Well, I think the problem for me, and again, you're right, how real is any of this, but uh, the man taking all the photographs who reinvests himself as Mr. Brainwash or whatever, he's not a good filmmaker. Like, that gets established. He spends years following Banksy around, getting all of this great exclusive footage, and then he spends a long time editing it, and it seems like a random mishmash. No story, no arc, no examination of the subject, just a collage of nonsense and images. So and he, even ad- he even admits that even after he uh, started telling his subjects that he was making a documentary so that they would allow him to keep following them around, even after he told that lie, he didn't make any effort to kind of organize his footage or think about, oh, maybe how, how would I do this? None of that. He was learning how to be an outsider artist or, you know, an avant-garde artist, but he doesn't have any inherent skills himself. He just studies them so he can be like them. Then he becomes like them and is successful. And is that counterfeit? (laughs) Yeah. 
it's sort of like a novel that's been ghostwritten by someone, you know. They want to get some celebrity story, but the celebrity can barely string three words together. So someone else writes a book, but the celebrity gets their name on the book, and the celebrity is a best-selling author all of a sudden. Right. But, you know, at the same time, I can't 100% disrespect him because there's something admirable about just plowing forward whether you know what you're doing or not. I mean, that's... Like, I certainly don't have that in me. Right. To be like, I want to accomplish something. I'm just going to do it, no matter what. You know? Like, some people are so held back by preparation and knowledge and developing a skill set that they never end up doing anything. And this guy, you know, just goes ahead and does what he wants succeeds well that's the trick of it i think like he's well connected was it was what makes him really lucky but i get frustrated again because it all comes back to me mick uh (laughs) like i spent my young life writing short stories and poems nobody read and i spent my 20s and early 30s writing and putting up plays that very few people saw. Now I have a podcast that few people listen to, and I'm thinking at some point I might want to write a book that not very many people will read. I have the drive in me to do stuff, but I I guess, and I don't think I necessarily suck at what I do, but I don't think that that drive inherently is is enough to, you know, that I, I deserve success because I want it. There seems to be something about not the Banksy character, but the Mr. Brainwash character that his want to be an artist supersedes his ability at being an artist. And should he be successful if that's the case? Like, doesn't it kind of undervalue or or question the value of art if somebody who is transparently false is successful at it? I do believe that's true. I do. However... I still have in the back of my mind, you know, okay, we have all of these um, respected artists in whatever field, um, but I don't know personally if how much effort or skill or whatever is going into this abstract painting that is now in the museum. Right. Maybe that person, you know, just did that in five minutes and is telling everybody that it was, you know, a search for the soul or whatever. And I mean, I just, I do feel like he's like this, um, Mr. Brainwash is a fraud and doesn't deserve it, but I don't know where the line is of where you start deserving it. Like, is it your intention? Is it only your intention? Or is it, you know, a certain amount of hours put in? Or is it, you know, like, the methods you use? I don't know. It's kind of, it's great for me. Is there a, like, legit artist? Or is all art legit? Or is no art legit? And the fact that Banksy, like, the crown prince of the subject... Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say all art is not legit, <laughs> including enough. that invisible fucking statue that they just put up in Italy. Did you read about this? I, I did not. Ugh. <laughs> Google that shit. All right. It'll make you angry. Oh, I remember years and years ago the Canadian government getting yelled at because they spent like $25,000 for a painting that's basically a red line on a, black, uh, a white canvas. <laughs> like... 
I'm sure that some hoity-toity arts folks can really appreciate, you know, the importance of that particular work. But a lot of people will just look at that and see a line on the canvas. And the fact that the crown prince of the art form, Banksy himself, seems to have a hard time defining it. I don't know if it hurts the credibility of art. It makes it both more interesting and yet sort of frustratingly random. Like, what is the difference between an incredibly successful artist and just an incredibly lucky one? Yeah. So that's that's where we come to. Uh, I mean, that's the discussion that the movie's having. The other thing that the movie accomplishes, uh, and that I think that if it didn't get distracted by this, all the other things that it would work on alone, is just this idea of the guerrilla art. You know, seeing these people set up ladders and these intricate like lifting systems so that they can put up a painting overnight very, very quickly. And, and just so the morning commuters will have a pleasant surprise on their way to work. Like... People will end up pulling these things down and, and you know, selling them and, and you know, trying to save this art that he makes. But there's something particularly interesting how impermanent these art in, things are. They're not even art installations. They're like, they're graffiti, but on another level. Right. And, um, and that's right, too, that, you know, even though this guy was a... Um, shitty filmmaker he still was documenting this culture that you know like Banksy was saying that is impermanent and needed documenting so he was at least doing that yeah I mean he did the legwork and like he was well connected <laughs> so it, it is an interesting movie like say what you will about it uh, how how real it is becomes the question and uh, I don't I like to think that this is 100% authentic. I think I would have to like drop the movie down a little bit in my esteem if I found out that it was all staged and it was all bullshit. But uh, yeah. well, I kind of googled the guy just to see like what he was up to. Um, he was planning on opening a museum, okay. like of of his own. Of his own stuff. That sounds right. So who knows if that happened or if that's even true? But apparently. We might be able to go to the Mr. Brainwash Museum one day. Yay. Um, <laughs> but true or not, it is an interesting story and it is a worthy watch. It's just tricky to figure out how it ranks in the list, I guess. Yes, and also, I mean, we haven't talked very much, you did mention, but um, just the artists that are portrayed, like, it's, it's really cool what they do and the risks that they take. And, and uh, well, I don't mean it's cool that they take risks, but you know what I mean. And uh, they're just—they're just brave and devoted, and it's very admirable. I think dedicating your life to art, if you're not already independently wealthy, I think is a really brave thing to do. Like, I love the arts, you know, but if I was to rely on the arts to pay my bills and my mortgage, I, I would be thin and homeless. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, congrats to people who can make it work. Is—is yeah. is there anything else you'd like to say about Exit to the Gift Shop? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered it. Check it out. It's worth a look.
Kubrick forces you to go out so room 237 is an examination on the shining and you and i have discussed the shining before and you know the whole cult of stanley kubrick and what more could possibly be said about the shining and if if anything i mean if nothing else is, is shown to us from room 237 is that there'll never be enough things to be said about the shining or for that matter, on any subject that people choose to obsess over. And the fact that the, that the movie is about The Shining is almost incidental. I think that this is a movie about how, as people, we let ourselves get obsessed over things. And it can literally be anything. For these three people that are being focused on in the documentary, it's the movie The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. And what it really means and it's a really interesting movie. The uh, It's directed by Rodney Asher. He also did another documentary on night terrors called The Nightmare, which is actually a pretty interesting documentary that has some good jump scares in it for good measure as well. But this is not the one telling you all the secrets of the making and the behind the scenes of The Shining. This is basically just footage of The Shining and other Kubrick works with interviews of critics or just random people on their thoughts and interpretations on The Shining. And it is absolutely crazy. And the first time I saw it, it rattled me as a critic because everybody has an opinion and uh, all of the, like, they can be quite crazy and out of whack, but like, there's no way you could talk any of these guys down about like how they feel about these movies. Like if this guy believes that The Shining is really a, a treatise on the treatment of Native Americans, then there's nothing going to talk him down. If this woman believes that like, it, or this guy believes that it's all about the moon landing and how Kubrick was participant in setting that up, then nothing is going to talk them down. Much the way when I give my opinion of Room 237, I'd be very surprised if anyone could talk me down. But opinions are like assholes and everybody has them. And these guys' opinions are crazy. But they have spent hours backing them up, making floor plans of the Overlook Hotel. And it is a study of the, uh, well, obsession of this film, but basically on obsession itself. And it's really very plainly executed. There's nothing flashy about how they go about what they do. But it's a fascinating, fascinating movie. Over and above, like, just getting other interpretations of The Shining, uh, it's just kind of a bold look at how we obsess over things and how our obsession can change things. Where does Mick land on this strange, strange documentary? Well, um... Because I love The Shining, um, and because I am not the kind of person who's going to watch a movie and catch all the visual references and all the Easter eggs and all that stuff, and I'm not really looking for them either, because that's not, you know, I'm not going looking for that stuff when I'm watching a movie, so I thought... Sorry, you cut out there. Um, Could you say that again, Mick? Sure. I was just saying that I'm not the kind of person who watches movies looking for the Easter eggs or the visual references, and I don't usually catch them. Right. So it's interesting to to hear all of these theories and to see what other people are catching. Um, with regard to the theories themselves, um, you know, I think when I watched 
237s, the ones that I found the most um, interesting or the, my favorite ones were almost the incidental ones and the, um, you know, the ones that could be considered continuity errors. Right. Um, those are the ones I like. Like, you know, like, why does the television set have no power cord? <laughs> and why are there two different typewriters? And, you know, and we see... Um, on Danny's door, there's the dopey, and then dopey's not there when he apparently, you know, knows more. So those are the ones that I like. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the deep theories about the Holocaust and, and everything else, to me, that's just a bunch of circumstantial evidence. I mean, it's interesting to hear about, but uh, to me, they don't... Uh, I just wonder how people end up down those <laughs> rabbit holes. Right. No, I think part of the rabbit hole with The Shining specifically is the cult of Stanley Kubrick. <clears throat> There's a lot of people that seem to believe that Kubrick was incapable of making any mistakes and was this obsessive visionary. And in a lot of ways he was. But they interview his director of photography on the special features in the DVD and he's like, I will show you any Kubrick movie and there are continuity errors in them. Like, people believe that he was infallible. He just wasn't. I remember watching The Shining with a, a, a woman and they, there's during the opening sequence you can actually see the shadow of the helicopter taking the shots in a few of the scenes. Yeah. And yeah. she was so defensive of Kubrick. She was like, oh, that's deliberate. Kubrick saw, he, he wanted us to be looking at every corner of the frame. He wanted you to be paying attention. And he sets it up right away. And I'm like, no, that is just a shadow of the helicopter that was in the corner of the frame for a few seconds. Like, yeah, same. <laughs> I do not believe that because he apparently had a 200 IQ that he is, nothing is unintentional. Okay, well, maybe nothing's unintentional, but, or has meaning, but maybe the meaning of the different typewriter is because the guy they borrowed the first one from was moving away and needed his back, you know? Like, we don't know anything. But, like, as far as his, like, specificity about the rooms, even, he would look at catalogs and pictures of hotel suites from all over the world, and then he would go to his set designer and he'd say, I want this room, and I want that room, and I want this room. So it, it's not even that he himself, again, designed all of those spaces, right? He saw someone else's design, thought that worked for his movie, and asked someone else to recreate it. But... Uh, all of these people are putting so much on to Kubrick, like he's such a genius, he can't possibly have done anything wrong. Uh, I, I like when they get excited by their own stories. There's this one woman who's just obsessed with the window in Ullman's office. <laughs> like, yeah. she's just driven mad by it. There's no reason for that window to be there. <laughs> and the light, the power of the light coming yeah. through. And like I said at the beginning, like there's no way that I would be able to talk this woman down from her position on on the movie. But on some level, I don't want to. I'm just like that she's getting that much out of the movie is kind of impressive of itself. But there's the other end of the spectrum where it gets kind of crazy. Where yeah, like uh, no, I don't think because some of the food tins in the you know in the pantry has a picture of a, a native face on it that equals this is about the united states destruction of the native culture right or and that when we see it head on it means one thing and when we see them kind of turned and all together it means something else yeah and this is not just to the shine like i've seen uh I, there's a internet uh 
series on YouTube that I like where this this really funny woman sort of has been dissecting uh, different movies. But uh, she was talking about the Dawn of the Dead remake. And she was like convinced because of one quote in the movie that the movie was a one large religious allegory. Had she seen the original movie, she would know that was just a reference to the original Dawn of the Dead and a throwaway line. But she anchors her argument on that one line. And I think almost any time you do that with any art, any book, any film, you say the whole film can be, you know, perfectly, perfectly crystallized by this one line. Chances are you're wrong. Chances are that's what you think it is, not what it actually is. But it's really interesting to have these pieces of art that, that are, are that malleable. Because as we talked about when we reviewed The Shining, it's not really an adaptation of Stephen King's novel. It, it's like uh, somewhere in between Kubrick and Stephen King, you know, comes this creation that is the movie version of The Shining. <laughs> but uh, purists of Stephen King would be outraged, but purists of Kubrick, you know, think he did nothing but improved the book. Nobody's necessarily wrong, but a few people are maybe crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it's interesting too to see how um, you know you know the art that they love, and in particular, I really liked that guy who talked about the um, art cinema viewing of The Shining played backwards and forwards, right. overlapped on itself, and um, and he was pointing out really you know, the neat visuals that came out of it, you know, like in the opening credits overlapping the end credits and stuff like that. And that was really cool. I would go watch uh, a backward forward showing of The Shining. That seemed that seemed neat. I don't believe that there's any meaning. Of course it, not. But I think it's very cool to, to think of that and to just do it as an exercise. But again, to believe that Kubrick would have it in his mind that you could run the movie backwards and forwards on top of it and that like further meaning would be developed like that's 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 cocoa for cocoa puffs as far as i'm as i'm concerned like that is a pretty crazy leap that you're taking but i love like the confidence with which these people like state their crazy crazy theories like they are believers. And if you're going to be crazy and obsessive about something, let it be something as safe as The Shining, you know? Like, at, at least they're focusing their weirdness in a, in a fairly, you know, harmless direction. Yes, and it's because of that, because of, you know, that was one of my problems with the presentation of this movie, actually, was that... I wanted to know more about those people. Right. I wanted to know more about their process and how they, you know, I mean, they explain how they came to their conclusions, but just more about the time they spent, you know, doing, you know, their, uh, putting their ideas together and stuff like that. And I wanted to see them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a choice. It's a dark directorial choice to focus more on the theories and, and the movie than the people who are telling. But, I, I don't know. That was one of my negatives. And I also was kind of distracted by the clips that were playing while the people were talking. Because, of course, sometimes it's 
clips from The Shining illustrating what they're talking about, but other times it seemed to be just random other Kubrick movies or random other movies. And yeah. I found myself kind of distracted by, um, you know, oh, what movie is that again? Or, like, do I know that movie? Or, you know, like, why did they show that image? It doesn't really go with what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so, I agree. So <clears throat> like, why Eyes Wide Shut? Why Barry Lyndon? That's not the subject of the... I guess Kubrick is the subject, and, like, that'd be peripheral, but... No, you, I agree. I think if they're going to be razor-focused on The Shining, they should be razor-focused on The Shining. And the movie is so uh, much just the interview subjects that it almost would work as a podcast. Like, you, you could listen to this movie and you would almost get as much out of it. And I don't think that's necessarily a compliment, but I did find the movie interesting. It's definitely for film nerds, and if you do have a pre-existing interest in The Shining, then that'll help you. But I do think that there's something to make a meal out of here. In the 80s, you listen to one of these stations where they play rock and roll. Seven or eight out of ten songs were recorded at Sound City. I was wondering whoever used the board after us, if they had a burning sensation in the next morning. Then they'd know we were there. <laughs> Other studios started to shift. Everything's got to be digital. Now you can record audio into the computer. I heard some young guy in a band say, you don't have to practice anymore. Or you just slice it up in the computer and it comes out perfectly. Sun City, it just couldn't keep up. Started selling off the gear in Studio B. I thought that board would just go straight to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm trying to move on, but it's been hard. Like many things, there's no bookstore, there's no music store, and there's no Sun City. In this age of technology, where you can manipulate anything, how do we retain that human element? Let's rock, let's play, let's record. Be true to yourself and make the music that you love. Chemistry is something that happens between people. The conversation became something much bigger. How do we keep music to sound like people? It sort of like evolves until it hits this point and maybe goes. Sound City is a documentary directed by uh, Dave Grohl, he of Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. And what kind of pisses me off about Sound City is that, like, is there anything you're not good at, Dave Grohl? Like, he taught himself how to play drums and then joined this band called Nirvana. He wrote and performed one of its best B-sides and then after the tragic falling apart of that band, fronts the Foo Fighters. He may be the only like band member who remained consistent album to album through all the Foo Fighters, but he's produced a lot of pretty decent rock music out of that outfit. And the... Then he decides to try his hand at the documentary form. Now, a case could be made, probably a pretty good case, is that this was an elaborate kind of marketing campaign for this album that he was going to be releasing. He physically bought the soundboard that, that you know Nirvana recorded Smells Like Teen Spirit on and moved it to his mansion because so, it was going to be disassembled and taken apart and be lost to time. And so many epic rock albums were recorded at this place. It just seemed like it would be a disgrace to music history to just, you know, have it be sold off in separate to separate corners of the world. Uh, so basically we get Dave Grohl's history, 
the history of the soundboard, some interview with some of the artists that's been a part of it, and some recordings of the sessions of the new recordings that he made in his house so that he could make an album that came out with the movie. So I'm not even kidding that this movie could just be an elaborate advertisement for the music because he's all about the music. But if that's the case, it's a really interesting and compelling elaborate advertisement for a band. It does help that I'm a fan and it does help that it was like I got sucker punched by seeing things like Tom Petty. I still get sad that Tom Petty died. <laughs> I see Tom Petty interview, I'm like, oh, dude. <laughs> but I love how much he loves this, this recording studio. I love its embrace of old school techniques. It's like, no, it's not how it's done anymore. In fact, it's way easier to do it in the digital age. But somehow this is better to me. The way some people are obsessed over their old vinyl albums, he's like obsessed about recording his rock music one track at a time on tape and mixing them right there in the room so everybody can hear the playback. And it's it's like a weird thing. It's like you'd think he needs to stay with the times, you know, keep on the curve, you know. You want to be cutting edge and on the, you know, alternative rock scene, then be that guy. But he, sort of like Jack White, is sort of clinging to traditional old school rock roots. And I guess there's a lot of that in me as well. For as popular as, you know, R&B and, and, and electronic music has become, I find myself missing the guitar more and more. And watching Sound City, that was what was really coming home for me. Like, how much I'm enjoying this rock music. And goddamn, girl, is there anything you're not good at? Your first time. I'm just gonna, you know, get some people together, do some interviews, and throw together a documentary. And it's a good one. And plus, he's apparently a really nice guy. Yeah. Everybody goes on about what a nice guy. It's kind of pissing me off, frankly. What does he think, yeah. he's Canadian or something? Bad about the atrocities that he's done, and it's going to be so disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to have a dungeon in his... Yeah, there'll be a dungeon underneath his mansion or something. But uh, until yeah. then, yeah, we can all like Dave Grohl. What did you think of Sound City? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, I really like um, hearing anything. You know, the things we love. It's always fun to hear the um, to hear about the creative process and about how you know a favorite song was written or came about or what the person was um, referring to when they wrote it. You know, and this for albums and bands and and stuff. And it's <laughs> I the oh, oh you're cutting out. Girl. Oh, you come back. You feel the glorifying of... Just shitholes, you know? <laughs> that are, you know, like the... What was it? The, uh, I'm going to sound stupid. Not the heebie-jeebies, but that, you know, the that um, punk club in New York. Right. It was just a gross, like, disgusting, sticky floor place. But, you know, so many amazing things happen there. And this yeah. thing here, so it's it's just interesting to you to hear about it and... No, you're right. It's strangely unglamorous. Even the sound studio that before it's moved to Grohl's Mansion or whatever, there's nothing particularly sexy about that place at all. It's a very get shit done back room. There's no glamour to it at all. Uh, I also really like that Dave Grohl, despite being famous for a long, long time, 
is completely able to be starstruck by people when he sees them. Like, I can tell, like, that he gets super jazzed meeting these people and talking about this sound thing. And, like, I don't know if it's me. I get this idea in my head. Once people get super famous, they're kind of above getting excited by things like, you know, meeting their favorite artists or, or, or seeing behind the scenes. That's I live my life behind the scenes. No big whoop. Well, he thinks it's a big whoop, and that really humanizes him for me. He's not this far-off distance rock star. In a weird way, Dave Grohl seems approachable. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I'm sure if I walked up to try and give him a hug, security would be all over me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's his security, not Dave. That's right. He seems like a huggy guy to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to see famous people fan fanboying or fan peopling on well, their idols too well and that's what the movie essentially is and this is the tricky part i actually watched this one twice because it took a while for us to get around him this is not me wagging a finger just the world was broken um because i was trying to figure out what my take on the review is because i feel like that's it like I like Dave Grohl. I like that I can relate to Dave Grohl. I like what a fanboy he is and how he nerds out over the old school recordings and how he nerds out over these rock fans. And I enjoyed getting off on that while watching the movie. But I don't know how to take it apart beyond that. I guess it's not a very quote unquote deep documentary. It's just a musician saying, I love music and I loved it enough that I'm going to take this piece of music history and like move it to my home. But I well, it's a little more than that, I would say, because, I mean, you know, we have the journey of the Neve console and, um, and like you said, you know, the history of when digital took over and stuff like that. So we did learn stuff. I mean, I didn't necessarily know all of that information. I'm not a tech head. Yeah. And I found it really charming when um, Rupert Neve was explaining the elements of sound and stuff, and it kept cutting back to Dave Grohl, like, not understanding mm-hmm. or pretending. Yeah. Well, and I start to believe him. Like when I hear cuts off of the Tom Petty album, and, and then I hear t- cuts off of uh, Nevermind, even though they sound completely different, I believe that they were recorded in the same room with the same way. Uh, and I don't think that that's something you can actually pick up with your ear. It's some sort of magical idea that we're given, but the movie kind of romances me into believing it. Like, that there is something better about that room, and there is something better about that way of recording. And there is something better about that room and its story and what it produces, but that does not mean that the people who work there benefit from that financially anyway. And that was really sad to see that. You know, people who have given their life to you know, keeping this baby running, and then when it's done, they're just, you know, sent on their way with no severance. It's really sad. But then on the other hand, you know, they've got a million stories, they've met a million amazing people, and I guess that's... They're a part of music history, so that's a hell of a consolation prize. Yeah, but it's just too bad that, I don't know, they couldn't pay their bills with it. There's there's nostalgia into the in in the movie, but I think maybe a bit of rose colored tinted glasses too. And that like, I I like how much he likes recording this way. But maybe there is a reason that things have progressed. That the change is necessary, even in art. Uh, 
and that it's great that he's keeping this piece of history but it 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 is just that it's a piece of history and that's sad and we kind of want to hang on to these things but to expect the world not to change is is naive right or uh, to refuse to let it change even though you know maybe your your preferred medium degrades you know when it's left out in the sun or whatever yeah you know? there's a reason why we move on yeah and he can afford it it's it's like uh now a lot of rich people, you know, keep horses, horses, you know, and and have the whole separate area where they have them. But once upon a time, there were dynasties of families that that like they kept your horse for you when you came into town because that's what happened. There was a whole industry of supporting that. But then automobiles came around. But I guarantee you there are all these people that are like horses are better, they will always be better and shame on you for thinking otherwise. Well, no. I mean, horses are great, but we move past horse, horses, you know? <laughs> so, uh, is this movie clinging to the past, or is it making a more overly romanticizing it? I don't think so, because I really got into it. And again, they're not talking about all the shitty albums that got recorded in that studio, and I'm willing to bet that some shitty albums were recorded there, too. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, you know, we learn about how many chances... How many? I mean, sorry. How many chances? What, Mick? The, the risks that people had to take to, you know, just try to get the studio going and running. Like that guy when he bought that console, it was seventy-six thousand dollars. Yeah. Twice the amount he paid for his house. <sighs> so that's a pretty big gamble. Yeah. You know? and, and now it's obsolete. Yeah. Can you imagine paying that much for something and then thirty years later? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. But I like to how they. Um, when they were in Dave Grohl's new studio, was it the guy? Um, was it Rage Against the Machine? I've, I don't. Sorry, I don't. I keep mixing <laughs> these guys up. Anyway, the one guy from the famous band. <laughs> <laughs> that dude. That dude. Well, well, he's really good at taking all these new tools and doing new things with them. He doesn't just hop on the bandwagon of oh, there's this digital thing, so I'm going to do it. You know, the way the digital thing wants me to do it. Yeah. He just sees it as a new tool that he can invent with and you know and that seemed to me to be kind of like the bridge to the future yeah you know he's still doing things with the old stuff getting the sound that he wants and then adapting the new tools to move forward and that's cool yeah i mean they might be giants recorded a song using the crank microphone <laughs> uh, recording machine like there is definitely a lot to be said for respecting the past but there's also a lot to be said for you know changing with the times that's all i was really trying to say it's a really interesting fun movie i think i benefited from being a fan of the music i think obviously if you were less into the music you might be less into the movie but it's a pretty safe recommend being fun, that is for sure. i destroyed the world so she's got one in ten chance of dying forever some people don't seem to realize that i'm not dealing with it anymore
Master Camp. This is a documentary about LARPing, live action role play. Uh, the thing that it most reminded me of actually was a documentary called Trekkies uh, on the subject of Star Trek fans. Yeah, uh, that's funny that you say that because, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you right away. No, that's okay. But on the back of the DVD box, the quote that is there, which I think does a disservice to the movie, to be honest, the quote is, um, Monster Camp is destined to be the next Trekkies. <laughs> and, and I thought that that kind of like set me up for disappointment, to be right. honest, because Trekkies is so slick, and the people who are featured in Trekkies are lifelong devotees who have money and are able to convert their dentist office into a Star Trek themed thing, or, you know, remodel their house into the Starship Enterprise, or have these huge collections, right? Right. And it's a really grand thing, and so to set up that kind of expectation, I had no preconceptions about this movie mm. and so you know seeing the um people who just sit around all day playing, playing world of warcraft when they're not larping mm. kind of made me feel sorry for them rather than go wow look at that guy yeah it was so i don't know so yeah kind of like threw me off a bit from the start but. puts you off the wrong foot well the reason it reminded me of trekkies other than the mention of it on the box is that they're taking on a subject that could easily fall into ridicule and at times, I think the Trekkies movie is absolutely guilty of it. We're not laughing with them. We're laughing, laughing at them. Oh, really? I guess I don't remember it well enough to... It certainly had... That, in Trekkies, I felt moments of that. Monster Camp, less so. Or in the moments where I felt the cringe, it was cringe that was coming from the people it wasn't like i felt like they were being framed to look as ridiculous as possible i i, I think of this one female uh larper who's got this super powerful character that she's way too invested in and just refuses to let the character die refuses to let the character die and all the other larpers start complaining and calling her on her and like these are grown-up people playing fantasies and you could point and laugh like you could get mean about this movie and i'm gonna pay the compliment to monster camp is that i don't think it's mean on purpose at any point i do think there are times where we are asked to maybe judge some of these people harshly but more than that we're supposed to kind of respect their commitment to a bit you know uh, one of the best quotes uh, in this is, the best thing you can do for yourself is give yourself permission to pretend. Just to be a kid, to be goofy. And I, I, another reason I might be sensitive to the movie is that this is a path that I could have easily fallen upon. If I found the right group of people and I felt like accepted and welcomed, like a cult, I could have been... <laughs> I, I, it seems, sounds severe, but like the wanting to belong and, and fit in, I could have been one of those guys traipsing around in the woods wearing a costume, holding a shield, and I would spend my weekends, you know, bulking up my magic abilities instead of, you know, having sex. So <laughs> there's like, uh, there's a percentage of this that could be a cautionary tale. And what I like about the movie is it isn't. It's a celebration for the most part of these people. Now, of course, in any group of people, in any sort of subset, uh, any hobby, any sport, any office, there is a percentage of assholes 
And that is represented here. But there's something that is, and again, this is unkind, a little bit extra pathetic about these assholes because the world they live in is so transparently artificial that when you drive that hard line for yourself and others, like, it can only lead to misery for you. <laughs> like, I imagine that there's a, probably a pretty even split of people who are involved in the movie who watched this movie when it was finally put together and thought, what a great movie that celebrates what I do. And the other half of the people who are mortified, mortified that they were caught on film doing this. Uh, maybe. It's undeniably fascinating, but uh, I couldn't help but feel like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I could have had more courage and been a part of something like that and enjoyed it. But another part of me thinks that, you know, Maybe there's a line where, you know, fun is fun, imagination is imagination, but when I was a child, I thought as a child. And when I grew up and became a man, I put away childish things. So there's lots to chew over there. Yeah, I think that's a little bit, I mean, I don't think it needs to be that severe. Right. Like, like, but you know what I'm saying. A child a little bit, Larry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know what you're saying. Um, and to me, I mean, I didn't think the movie was making wanting us to laugh at them at all i didn't get that that feeling um but i more thought that you know for me like a hobby a hobby right people get invested in all different things and whatever you want to do fine but like the thing that sometimes defines a hobby whether you're ridiculed or not is sort of the production quality of what you're doing in a way like you know if these people were going to um an organized mansion in the middle of a beautiful meadow and they had professional costumes and scripts and were doing something you know people maybe wouldn't have as much inclination to laugh at them yeah but because it's so amateurish and they're you know painting their own faces and wearing these kind of just green garbage bags almost as yeah. monsters you know like it just looks sillier whether or not the intention is you know and I mean but oh, you cut out again there I missed I missed the last couple sentences you said there girl I'm sorry that's okay play right but if you know a co-worker said to me one day oh i do this and whatever i don't think that i would change my mind about them you know like it wouldn't be it would be kind of interesting to find out what they do but yeah i mean it's like it's just cooler when your sword looks like a sword and not a pool noodle yes <laughs> you know? and, and i know that's i know that's not fair <laughs> but it does it does play into it no, I agree. And and you're right. Like, poor people are crazy. Rich people are eccentric. That sort of yes. bullshit dividing line. No, that, yeah. that, that that's not fair. Uh, I think that another reason that it was a little bit different, uh, apparently when they recorded this, it was unseasonably cold. So a lot of people were actually wearing their clothes and then their costumes over top of them in the, in the movie. So uh, they don't look as, quote, authentic as they would have liked to, but the weather was uncharacteristically cold, apparently. There was a lot of comments on the IMDb page from people involved in the film that wanted to point that out. On a regular round, uh, the, the costumes would be much better if, if the situation was optimal. <laughs> 
Well, that's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and um, so so this portrayal, though, did not make me interested to go and find out about LARPing. Right. If I was maybe leaning that way. Because just because the gameplay that they showed us didn't seem that fun, even though the people who were doing it seemed to be enjoying themselves, you know, the... They didn't kind of find a way to convey the stories that they were playing in an interesting way and, like, explaining the rules in a way that made sense, you know. They just kind of showed um, characters who themselves didn't know all the rules and stuff. So, So, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. But at the same time, like, I don't know if it was fulfilling its purpose. Yeah, I also, I, I didn't understand all of the facets of the game, but I thought it was interesting that you could respawn like a video game. If your character died, you get to go, you have to go to this special hut and then you drew a number out of a hat. And uh, there was like a one chance in 10 that if you, you, you drew the wrong number, your character would be permanently dead. And people lived in abject terror of that happening. Like they had invested so much time into this. It's weird to me watching the movie that I'm not more into LARP. I remember being invited to do like, I think it was some vampire masquerade thing, which is, I didn't do it, but it was so much the same idea. But I've done all manner of acting exercises and improvisational sort of shows and stuff like that. And that's all it really is. It's it's, it's another version of that. You just have a costume on. It's just like in a less formalized way. It's like you and your friends out in the woods doing it instead of doing it, you know, in a rehearsal space or something like that. So it's really weird to me that I felt resistant to LARPing, even when I was young enough to like take it more seriously than I do now. Um, There was, I think, an aspect of shame about it. I grew up in an age where being the nerd or being into fantasy, you know, didn't carry much currency, you know, socially. And that that has completely changed in this next generation. Uh, and maybe it was my growing up in that world, like, because I, I feel like a part of me could have had a lot of fun with this if I let myself. But there's something that wouldn't let me. Uh, I'm talking about LARPing, not the movie itself. The movie itself made me kind of like, I guess, commit to at least at this time in my life. No, LARPing isn't necessarily for me, but I get it. I get it. And maybe before I actually sat and watched Monster Camp, I didn't completely get it. If you had engaged in it, you wouldn't have ended up saying you were still on your fifth year of high school because all you do is sit around and play games all day. That's right. Like, oh, buddy, you know? And again, is that worse? Like, at least these people are putting on costumes, they're going out in the woods, they're outside, they're interacting physically with each other. There is something social about it. There were a handful of women there. Well, and there was like a a split up couple who who had met there and now they they had to interact in the game, but they didn't want to interact in real life. Well, they wouldn't want their dynamic. their broken relationship to affect the the, the, the false LARP world. <laughs> so strange, but interesting, and I think you know worth looking at. It didn't have the same popularity as Trekkies. I think it kind of wanted to be a bigger thing than it was. It kind of slipped by under the radar. This movie, but if it sounds like something that you'd be interested in, check it out. It's not necessarily one of these point and laugh at these people, which is what I was worried I was getting into initially. Good enough? 
Everyone's like, what's your approach, Scott? How do you work these women? And I'm like, the more pitiful I am, the more the women like me. <laughs> and I went and spoke at a rehab hospital, and there's this young guy. We couldn't get him out of the rugby chair when it was time to leave. He's just like, this is great. I want to go hit stuff. People say some of the dumbest things. Like, I'll be loading groceries into my car, and people are like, do you need help in your car? It's like, well, I wouldn't have come to the grocery store if I couldn't get back in my car. Remember Ocean's Eleven? Remember that little Asian guy that gets in that box? <laughs> I've actually done more in a chair than I did able body. We're not going for a hug. We're going for a little milk. It's a whole different aspect of being in a wheelchair. So we're going to talk about Murder Ball. Um, this is a documentary about uh, a really, really brutal game of rugby played by uh, men in wheelchairs. And uh, we mainly follow this guy, Mark Zupan, uh, one of the top players in the, in the field, and we hear his whole story. And it absolutely works as sort of like an inspirational, like this guy had a tragedy happen to him, and he rebuilt his life, and he has excelled and overcome. And this is a great story to tell, and it's like, you know, the classic template, you know? We're going to see this guy face these problems, overcome them, and excel, and see he can do all of these things even though his body has been broken. And it's true. The movie completely works on that level, and I give it a thumbs up on that level. But here's the thing that I want to say about Murder Ball that nobody seems to say about Murder Ball. I'm going to respect Zupan and his buddies enough to be honest with them and say, before they got in their accidents... I don't think I would like any of these guys. And after they had their accidents and overcame these things and got into the rugby, I still don't like most of these guys. In fact, I think they're run on an engine of, for lack of a better term, toxic masculinity, right? It's always a competition. It's always violent. It's always intensely personal. These guys are bullies. They're jock asshole bullies. These are the guys that used to beat me up when I was a kid. These are the guys that would go six on one and yell at me until I cried and then laugh at me for crying. And that's the way they were before they got in the chair. And that's definitely the way they are after they got in the chair. So <laughs> I'm at arm's length from the movie because I can appreciate all that they overcame and like that they do really tough things and that they've rebuilt their life and that they're exceeding and that they're living their best lives according to them. But I don't think I could stand to be in a room with any fucking one of them. Not one. There's this scene towards the end of the movie where they're like yelling at their former coach about how he's betrayed their country because he's teaching an, a, a Canadian team because he couldn't teach any other team and he wanted to teach rugby. And Honestly, the bully atmosphere and the jock bullshit, which I've never liked in my entire life, ended up being the over-encompassing thing that I took out of the movie. Like, 
they used all of their anger and hate and competition and they used that to overcome their physical disability and you know what good for them but i don't want to spend any time with them in the real world and i didn't particularly enjoy spending time with them watching the movie is this a personal attack is this personal because of my history probably but yes this was my least favorite of the movies that we were talking about today <laughs> am i completely unreasonable here <laughs> I wouldn't say completely, but I didn't see it that way. Okay. You you you, you glitched out. You said you, you didn't see it that way, and then nothing happened. <laughs> Sorry, could you say that again? I said, and I'm disappointed that I won't get to be the champion again, because I did not put this as my least favorite oh, movie. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying, and I wouldn't want to hang out with them either. But I didn't. I didn't see their attitudes necessarily as um, coursing through their entire personalities or personas. Right. Like to me, to me, it wasn't. It wasn't that strong. To me, that was focused on the sport and on winning and being, you know, like rah rah, let's win, um, you know, trash talk, all of that stuff. Right. So. To me, that's kind of where it was, and, you know, like, yes, they were, you know, that guy's one friend was like, Mark is an asshole. Yeah. He was an asshole, but, like, they say that. They say that straight out. Yeah. Right? But, um, it's, I don't know, like, I don't think we get enough of their personalities to make the determination that, you know, all of them are terrible, shitty, horrible people and have nothing to give the world. Right. Like, I, I didn't think it went that far um but again i wasn't looking at it through that lens right and i was kind of distracted by the coat which she looks a lot like I, uh, michael ironside did you think like, <laughs> yeah, yeah no i definitely I, see that it's weird it's weird <laughs> but but no and i, I found that the the usa canada rivalry thing yeah it's over the top and stupid and like normal people don't talk that way but this is in the context of sport and Winning. Um, so to me, like within that concept context, I was willing to go with it, and I liked the structure of the story, you know, going between uh, the person, the personal accounts of how they got injured and how they were rehabilitating themselves and discovering the sport, and you know, um, the progress toward the um, the teams towards um, the Olympic. Paralympics, Paralympics and Athens and, and stuff like that. So, you know, like, I was interested in, in that story. No, and it is compelling. I, I started off being really... <laughs> and, and they were very honest. They were frank. Yeah. You know, if, if they weren't, oh... And it was not sentimental. No. At all. You know, and, like, these guys are, are aggressive. They're, they're tough, but they're also, you know... Like, they're... I don't know. They're... Authentic. What are they? Yeah, yeah. They're authentic. And I appreciate that the movie doesn't try to sugarcoat it. It would be a worse movie if they were trying to tell me that Mark Zupan, you know, suddenly became a better person because of all of his trials. Or, or you know, used to be an asshole, but now has found a truer path. That wouldn't be honest. I appreciate that they're honest about it. Um, and and uh, there are things that I really like. His friend, who's responsible for the accident, 
Like, he was really, really weirded out about participating in the movie. Like, it was one of those things, like, they finally convinced him to get the footage, but even once they got the footage of the interview, he kept on being wishy-washy about whether he'd let them use it. He finally, eventually let them. That whole aspect of the movie I find incredibly compelling because he is responsible for this injury. He didn't mean to do it. It was a total drunken, stupid accident. But in the end of the day, he is why this guy's in the chair. He knows it, Mark knows it, and that is a hard thing to deal with. And uh, that aspect of the movie is, you know, obviously really compelling and, like, tough. And again, and I, I appreciate that aspect of it. And I do think it's strangely inspirational. Like, you need to find something within yourself in order to get overcome this obstacle. My problem is, is it's like... This isn't what Mark said to himself, but in my head, this is like the oversimplified version of it. Just because I'm in this chair doesn't mean that I won't be able to physically and psychologically dominate everyone I encounter. Yeah. And that personality type is just an instant go fuck yourself to me. Like, I just, yeah. I just don't do it, right? <clears throat> and again, the whole sports thing. I am not a sports guy. I have said in the past that movies are my sports. Movies are more dependable than sports. They're like, they'll always be there. They're good games. They're bad games. They're the classics. But uh, I don't dig into the competition end of things. I don't even like watching the fucking Oscars anymore. Like, I, uh, I don't like the uh, bullshit competition. I don't like the idea that because your team won that game, ergo it is the best team that year. Just be, you, your movie won Best Picture, ergo it is the best picture made that year. I just don't believe in it as a principle. And to not believe in it as a principle and then see these people fight tooth and nail underhandedly and really, really hurt each other as much as they can physically and emotionally for this completely symbolic victory just has never made sense to me. I think it's stupid. And Yes, but <laughs> I, I agree in principle with what you're saying like you know about the winning and all that yeah but when you look at what sport is and what sport does you know for little kids and little kids in school like not every kid likes sports and that's fine but sport itself is beneficial absolutely to, to people you know like is our benefiting you know at the skills that they're gaining and like learning about the sport itself and about you know the point system of um how quadriplegic you can be yeah. you know in order to have the players on this on floor like you know it doesn't matter if you have one arm that works and one that doesn't because it depends on how many people on on the floor at a time point value like all that stuff is really interesting to to learn about i've never seen a yeah you know a quadriplegic rugby game and you know and these people are they're playing a game and yes it's stupid to put that much value on winning and losing but you know it's essentially sport is not about that and i think there's a lot more to this culture and this um this team than what we're shown no you know absolutely and, and, and it really is the focus on the rivalry and, you know, the macho-ness and the bitterness. But I really don't believe in my heart that that's what the whole organization is for or no. is about. I don't know, you incremental... Know, you get incrementally better as you do things. You start, you're not very good, you get more and more comfortable. And especially if you're coming from this place where your body was broken and you're relearning how to use it, <clears throat> it it's all the more powerful. 
But to me, because I don't give a shit about sports, that's not the stuff that spoke to me. Honestly, like when they were talking nuts and bolts about the, their sex lives, for instance, like that's intensely personal and, you know, maybe over the line, but like they were willing to talk about it. They did. They were very frank about it. And it was interesting to learn. Like, I guess part of me just assumed that if you couldn't walk, you couldn't have sex, but that's not necessarily true. And, uh, you know, so that they do have partners and they do, you know, have that aspect to their life. And they do brag about it like douchebag jocks would, right? But, Whereas, you know, this movie refutes stereotypes about disabled people. Okay, it doesn't refute stereotypes about bullies. That's right. That, but, you know, Monster Camp reinforces stereotypes about gamers and yeah. about, you know, so it's just interesting. Well, and I guess I feel more affection to the gaming world than I do the rugby world. One more comment, and again, I feel like I'm being a super asshole, and this is the most asshole thing I'm saying in this whole thing, but they keep on going on about how this is the most brutal, like, high-speed collision crash, like, painful sport there is. But if everybody on your team is literally already paralyzed, most of them don't feel anything from the waist down, shouldn't that take away some of the badassery? Am I being a total asshole here but like that hadn't even occurred to me to be they're so fucking macho about it oh man I just plowed into that guy yeah you did neither yeah. of you felt anything right yeah but if they fell out of their chair and fell on their head like yeah. that would hurt of course know? there's risk but you know what I'm saying right I do I do know what you're saying and that had not occurred to me but, but still you know I mean I'm it's a thumbs up review. It's just out of this list of movies, it didn't it, it, it didn't connect with me as much. It's the problem very well might be me. <laughs> no, everything you're saying is valid. I just don't think it's um, as all encompassing. I don't feel that it's as all all encompassing as you do. Fair enough. Beyond anything you can ever imagine. Mind-boggling. I saw his face changing. Now I'm gonna perform. This is probably the end of my life to step on that walk. Death is very close. Et donc je criais, regardez, regardez. Et il a salué. figured I was watching something that somebody else would never see again in the world. Thought it was once in a lifetime. Life should be lived on the edge. This is what we're here for. See every day as a true challenge and then you live your life on the tightrope. So we just talked about Murderball and I was going on and on about how I had a hard time reaching into the the beating heart of that movie because I found a lot of the characters kind of unlikable. It's interesting because uh, the main character of this movie, Philippe Petit, is that close? Thumbs up. <laughs> Thumbs up. Um, by the end of the movie, I don't like him very much at all, but I have to just respect what he accomplished. <laughs> uh, this is a true story of kind of a heist that took place in New York. And we follow it from very, very early beginnings. When he's a very young man, like I think 13 or 14 years old, he sees an announcement about the World Trade Center's being built. 
And he has this image of his head about stringing a wire across it and walking it. And to his credit, as amazing and ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly what he does. He recruits his friends and pulls off this crazy elaborate heist that you wouldn't believe if it was written as fiction, but it absolutely took place. Strung the wire, walked the wire, people saw it, there was camera footage, and became an overnight celebrity. That's the subject of this movie, Man on Wire. And it's an amazing documentary. Like, right out of the gate, first thing I will say is, if you haven't seen Man on the Wire, just watch it. It's completely worth your time. It's an absolutely fascinating, thrilling documentary. Like, really, that could be the end of the whole review. But, of course, there's a lot more to be said. It's already fascinating just to see how they pulled it off. But to me, especially on this viewing, the thing that really, really fucks with me is that ending. Once he accomplishes this life mission, and it's kind of weird that he accomplishes this by the age of 24, I think, when he was on the wire. His girlfriend, all the people that he helped, like, helped him make this dream come to fruition, he completely abandons them. As far as I could tell, most of them hadn't spoken to him at all since it happened until they were being interviewed for this film. At the risk of sounding like a snob, there's just... <laughs> It almost under undoes so much of what he accomplished that why did you have to be such a dick about it afterwards, dude? Like, what was that about? But that is also part of what makes him such a fascinating character. Once again, like, maybe not like with Murderball, I wouldn't mind like having supper with Sky and hearing his thoughts and maybe asking him a few questions. But I think, like, he's a fundamentally pathologically selfish human being who accomplished something amazing so that's what I, the I movie agree. is <laughs> well and just like you know the the best doctors and ceos are probably psychopaths you know because that's the mindset that allows you to do that that kind of job correctly like it's the single-mindedness that allowed him to train his entire life to do to fulfill this dream that he had yeah. and you know once once that was done you know like maybe his his single-mindedness just went somewhere else and yeah. that didn't include all of those people who support like could they not be helpful for the next adventure it's yeah it's weird i don't know and another thing too that's interesting about him and this selfishness angle is that he's um so the structure of this documentary is him recounting like he wrote a book about this called uh, to reach the clouds and this documentary is um taken from that book and philip Pizzi himself is um recounting what happened and he is very engaging and very well spoken yep. and you know he has you on the edge of your seat just talking about it and you know he's talked about this 10 million times before but he's still as animated and as exciting and as you know compelling when he's discussing it so obviously like you know <laughs> it's just that was crazy to me he is in love with himself and like yeah. definitely can you move your mic up i think you got a little bit quieter for a second there sorry that's cool uh yeah the nuts and bolts of this thing like when you think about like what they were trying to pull off they had to sneak past security with a couple hundred feet of wire cable fire an arrow across from one tower to the other so that they could string the wire across. 
And then they stayed in the building overnight, waited till dawn for him to do the walk. Oh, and he didn't die. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, I also want to give the documentary points. It would be easy to add an extra sort of layer of uh, melancholy because it is the World Trade Center. I don't believe 9-11 is even mentioned in the documentary, and I appreciated that. Yeah, I think I read on the little wiki stub um, about this movie that um, they didn't want to take away from the accomplishment, so they avoided mentioning it at all. Well, and that's not what the story is about. It would be right. weird to bring it up almost. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe I could get his thoughts on what he felt about when the towers fell. But it's not like anyone else was ever going to do that. What he did was incredibly illegal. I think he spent uh, a little more than 24 hours in police custody, but he ended up being basically released with, like, no charges or mischief or something, like, completely not even a slap on the hands. Yeah, he traded a performance or, you know, performances in exchange for being released. Um, But I think, well, the only reason they were successful was that the building wasn't complete the buildings weren't completely built yet yeah so there was still construction and, and all that stuff and fake vacant floors and and everything so they couldn't just do it even if the towers were still there there's a very amusing scene where they're they're trying to get some more conspirators to help them pull this thing off and these people are horrified because one of his main uh guys helping him reeks like marijuana when they meet him and when they interview the guys like well i i smoked weed every day for like 30 years so yeah probably but there's an endorsement for a productive pothead in spite of the fact that he was in a fog of weed smoke he still somehow helped to pull this shit off no isn't that the guy who backed out at the last minute oh that's right because he but he, he was freaked out by the whole uh it's a weird cast of characters that he's got with him too it was almost like he was he cast them specifically to make the story as interesting for him as possible um but yeah you're right philip is sort of the interesting guy like i'm sure he's accomplished other things but like he must know like that's not a toppable thing (laughs) like once once you've done that that is the thing you've done and you're right 20 years later he is talking about it with a verve and passion but it's all him. It is really all him. Like, you can, he can acknowledge that other people helped him, but this was him. Yeah. Like, I wonder if he used anyone else's name in the book. <laughs> like... <laughs> well, the second that he is released, he meets that fan or whatever and is in a hotel room with her for three days. Yeah. You know, like, you know, if that's true. Never, didn't speak to his girlfriend again, and the rest of the crew basically were abandoned. Like, it was his accomplishment. And, I don't know, like, the movie definitely addresses it. Uh, Like, the movie addresses that that's what happened, but I still feel like lets him a little bit off the hook for it. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, it it doesn't delve into it, um, because we're interested in his accomplishments I right. guess but yeah no the artist must do is kind of the impression that I got you know? the like, artist yeah, must do and yeah <laughs> yes but yeah uh, but it is unfortunate I don't know why he would abandon his his loyal loyal helpers well friends. 
Because it was something that hit me more watching it the second time. The first time I watched it, it was like this, just like I said. It's a heist picture, practically. It's like Ocean's Eleven, but it really fucking happened. And it was all for art. There's nothing about that that I don't love. It's just funny how much the ending really hit me on this one. And I, this time, I feel like, I don't think he should be let off the hook. I think we should do both. I think we should say it's absolutely amazing what he did. But it's also absolutely shitty that he, like, basically abandoned and unacknowledged everybody who helped him achieve this great goal. It would be like when Meryl Streep wins her fucking ninth Oscar. On that night, she divorces her husband and stops talking to any other actors because, really, she's achieved the highest level anyone ever could and fuck the rest of them for even trying. I think that would make us like Meryl Streep less, you know? I guess, but I don't think that we know enough necessarily to to make a strong judgment about it. Okay. I mean, he did just walk away and maybe there were reasons. I don't know. Like, I guess, I think we need to hear him out, I suppose. (laughs) But, But that's a different movie because this was based on his book. Well, and I think that's why it's a treating him like such a hero is because that's the payoff. We want to go, yeah, and pump our fists in the air. He actually did it. And he did. He actually did it. And we can't yeah. really take that away from him. And and it's still and a great he, movie for all the... And he movies. did it with panache, too. Like, he didn't, didn't just walk across. Like, he walked across multiple times, laid down on the wire, yeah. did that little kneeling thing where yeah. you hold your hand up. Like, it really is And one. Like bad gust of wind, or that news helicopter got too close, or just one microsecond of overcompetent, uh, over uh, confidence, and this story ends with it's a story about a French lunatic who tried to walk across this wire, and of course died because that's what's going to happen, moron. Right? Really, in a lot of ways, that's how that story almost should have ended. <laughs> like, it feels like fiction. It does. And I don't get the, you know, I understand the principles of balance and you hold your arms out when you're going to fall down and stuff yeah. like that, but that bar. <sighs> no. And he seems more confident with I the bar. Understand how that, I don't understand how that helps you. I really don't get it. It's fascinating. <laughs> but they showed that, um, that home video clip of them, you know, shaking the wire and bouncing the wire and trying to get him to fall off and stuff like that. Like yeah. he was preparing for it and... Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. He's amazing at what he does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great, great it's sort of kind of adventure film. Um, I, I, I'm curious, like, uh, I'd heard of only a couple things about the Zemeckis film that they did. Um, one was that when they presented it in IMAX form, they had people fleeing the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> It was like the vertigo was becoming a really real thing for people. People were like starting to get nauseous. Uh, And the, yeah, the thing about people being debating how good Levitt was with, you know, handling the accent or whatever. I'm just curious. I know that's not really part about this review. Did they acknowledge that he kind of abandoned everybody at the end uh, in the movie? I don't remember. I'm sorry. Okay. I have no recollection of whether they went into that at all. It being a Robert Zemeckis joint, I... My gut tells me that it would just end with him being successful and famous and credits roll, but I'm just curious. It's, again, I feel like I've been focusing on the negatives. This is a great movie. This is a great movie. Um, I just think one of the most interesting things about it is this twist that happens at the end, and because it kind of hurts the hero narrative, it's a little bit underexplored. 
but it's a quibble. I love the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's valid. Yeah, and I also loved the just that they had all that old video footage, and we got to see the progression of him first trying it out on the Cathedral Notre Dame, and then going to Sydney and doing it on Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah, you know, and yeah, it was just great that they had his his growth journey. I guess. Yeah, it's just bananas. It's just bananas. I can't believe that he did that. Yeah, and for that reason, watch the movie. So that was six documentary features uh, reviewed by Mireille Smith and uh, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Thank you so much for being here and fighting through the technical difficulties with me. Um, it's a weird thing because like they're, they're all documentaries, but they're kind of very different. You know, it's a broad subject. So um, I guess I'd be surprised if we matched. But the thing I did want to say, despite, you know, especially the lambasting that I gave Murderball, I do like all of these movies. <laughs> when you have to force them into stacking them in an order, you kind of find reasons to do it. But if you like the form, I think these are, for, for the most part, safe safe choices. Uh, agreed? I agree, and I like them all, too. Yeah. There wasn't one that I didn't like or that I wouldn't recommend. And that doesn't always happen on ranking reviews, so, you know... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's let's savor the flavor of that for a moment. What was your least favorite of these six documentaries and why? Well, uh, I guess first I'll say how I rank them because it's pretty... Not really looking at plot or acting quality or anything. Well, I guess Man on Wire, we could look at reenacting quality a little bit. If yeah. Want to do, but, um, but mostly it was just came down to like if I liked the way they presented the story, how many complaints I had, and personal interest. So that's how I went with it. So number six is Monster Camp. And I was really really interested to learn about live action role play and stuff like that, but I just, the gameplay that they showed us, I didn't find that compelling. So that's why it's number six. Hard to penetrate. Yeah. Oh, and... This is dumb, but I'm going to say it anyway. They, they're part of an organization, the Seattle branch of the New England role-playing organization. I think the name's changed now to um, LARP Alliance or something. But like, but they abbreviated it to Nero. Why would you go to Nero when you could be Nerpo? That's just <laughs> terrible. Well, that's why they're last place then. <laughs>
Studio 606 stuff at the end. I mean, it was really cool watching them record and think through a song and try things out, but there was, I just thought that part was too long. And also, like, they hardly talked to Weezer. Weezer was just snuck in right at the end. And I thought, oh, why don't you cut out some of the Studio 606 stuff and give us more Weezer? That would have been interesting. Um, but I loved it. Number three, I put Murder Ball. Okay. And, and again, I apologize. I did not clue into all of the bully stuff. I, I mean, obviously I saw it there, but for me, that was not the focus of the movie at all. Right. Um, and I really liked seeing the, you know, kind of journey to the Olympics. And even though I'm not a super hardcore sports fan, I appreciate sort of, you know, the, the just the... The spirit and the journey that sports can give a person and the community that, you know, I don't know, can, can support it. And also, like, that it wasn't sentimental or cheesy. Right. At all. Like, <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, so that was, what, number three? Yep. Number two, exit through the gift shop. And so number one, man on wire. And I'll kind of talk about them together, like, so I thought they were both kind of, they were both really well told in my opinion, and I wasn't for, like we discussed, Exit Through the Gift Shop, I was not telling me it was true or not, <laughs> so that didn't come into it for right. me. Um, these are both stories about people who follow their passions and end up at their dreams, but their journeys are like completely different. Yeah. Like, you know, Terry from Exit Through the Gift Shop is like wackadoo falling backwards into success, like, you know, just barreling ahead not knowing what he's doing and that is fascinating whereas Philip Pizzi is a person who did not waver from the moment he got the thought about his dream he trained he found a way he like surrounded himself with people who could help him achieve what he was go what he was doing didn't care if it was illegal you know like the planning the trips to New York borrowing money like just everything to finally achieve that and I thought that um, Man on Wire was compelling from beginning to end and that's why it's number one yeah that's a really strong list Mick uh, it's we're, we're closer than you would have imagined and uh, I especially agree with you on your numbers one and two uh, we share the same top two um, and for me it's just I'm really engaged and romanced by this idea of making art into crime or crime into art like it's not something that i've done or necessarily would do but i've got a weird rebel respect for somehow <laughs> so uh those two were kind of default the the ones to beat going into this list but we do differ um surprise surprise in sixth place i put murder ball probably because those guys reminded me of my bullies when i was a kid um i i think that the movie is really well handled in that it's very blunt and very honest and it doesn't romanticize anything like uh, I, like i say a much worse version of this would be you know pretending that these guys were perfect all americans who overcame their ordeals and were better people because of it no, fuck all of that. But uh, uh, it is a really good sort of, you know, people can overcome type of movies. And I wouldn't give it a thumbs down. But it is handily my least favorite on this list. 
In fifth place, I put Monster Camp. Um, there's parts of it that I could really relate so much to that it almost made me cringe internally. Like, I could have been one of those kids fairly easily if I met the right people at the wrong time or, or arguably the, the, the right time. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's just a whole world that passed by me, but uh, by a slim margin. I could have, I could have fallen into that. <laughs> The fanboy in me really appreciates especially the music history lesson that is Sound City. Uh, we didn't mention it in the review, so I'll agree with you now that I think at two hours it might be it might overstay its welcome. I think oh, nine... No, it was like two hours and 44 minutes or something like that. Oh, really? Or two hours and a half. I think I wrote it down. It was really long. Anyway. Uh, oh, uh, 152 minutes. You're right. So two and a half hours. So uh, agreed. Um, you could probably they could have probably trimmed some of it down, especially in the third act. But I did enjoy it while it was happening. Um, but and it had a little bit of fat to trim. I also just want to remind everybody: Dave Grohl had never made a movie before. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a bitch! All the way, all the way in third place is Room Two Three Seven. In the way that Murderball was personal to me because it rubbed me the wrong way with the bully thing. Uh, Room 237 is personal to me because it's about people who are obsessed with movies. I don't know if you noticed this about me, Mireya. I kind of have a bit of a thing for movies. And again, I like to think I'm not as off the shelf as like all these conspiratorial people are talking about The Shining. But it's there. Like, I can see, I can see slivers of that. If I get really pissy or passionate talking about, like, some stupid Friday the 13th franchise, stop disrespecting me. <laughs> or, like, how I almost got on the verge of tears defending the, the uh, Ewan McGregor movie, The Impossible, because I just couldn't believe how shitty people were treating that movie. Like, it's, it's in me. <laughs> it's in me. Like, this, this sort of crazy... Too much of a fan thing is in me, and I recognized it in this movie. So even though I agree with you, the form is not exactly the most engaging. We just see footage from Kubrick and hear these thoughts, and that it's almost as valuable to just listen to. Because I connected to it so completely, it made its way to third place for me. But it is a visual movie. You know, you're right. I, I, I get you. But this is a personal list. It's a visual movie, and it's a personal list. <laughs> I retract, rewind. There's no point arguing, because we're already not matched anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, but but now we do. Exit to the gift shop is second place. Um, it might have had a chance at first, if I could believe the veracity of it. It still works if it's this punk kind of, like, art wank, like we're fucking with you because it's fun to fuck with you, I would still think that's absolutely valid. But the power of the, being a true story adds something to it. And again, the the real questions that they raise about art aren't just, you know, what is art, but, like, why do we value it and should we? <laughs> like, that's some pretty tricky territory to navigate if you yourself are an artist. So, bravo, Banksy. Bravo. But Man on Wire is, like, it's it's an enthralling kind of exciting documentary like it's a nail biter i didn't know how it was going to work out i mean obviously he survived <laughs> but like uh like that's what it felt like i needed to know what happened next it was riveting it was like almost like you're watching an action thriller but it's a story being told to you by the people who lived it so 
number one man on wire we didn't match but i don't think we're as different as as you know as we could be right and he did um philip pitsy did um string on a wire across the river and up like halfway up the eiffel tower or something and kind of like climbed up it so he's done that kind of lately i don't yeah. know how many years ago that was ah oh, whatever old news <laughs> <laughs> Once you've walked the World Trade Center, just retire. <laughs> True. <laughs> Thank you well, so I much. She go to Dubai. Thank you so much for suffering through the heat wave, the technical difficulties, and we finally got this one done. Um, I really appreciate that you do the podcast with me, and uh, that we did an interesting subject. My pleasure. Y- yeah, I'm gonna go stick my head in a cold bucket of water. There it was. Another fun-filled edition of Rankin Review hits the rearview mirror. Thank you very much to Mireille Smith for talking documentaries with me this week. And I don't know if you could hear, but it was just, it was really hot, both in Edmonton and in Saskatoon, where the conversation was taking place. So we suffered through it a little bit. So I hope uh, your ears are appreciating that. If you have feedback, you can send it to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca because I'm up here in Canada. And if there's other podcasts that you'd like to check out, um, there's some friendly shows to rank and review. Please check out the Terror Table podcast, the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, um, uh, A Lifetime of Hallmark, um, Cobwebs, a Gothic Horror podcast. These are all good things to fill your brain with until the next episode of Rankin Review.